We're going to be in John chapter 8 tonight. I guess this is going to click forward. There we go. John chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there uh, in your Bibles, as we talk about the woman in adultery and we talk about this conversation from freedom, uh, from shame to freedom. So uh, people are extremely predictable, right? Uh, We have a lot of predictable tendencies So let me ask you to pick a number in your mind. Do this in your mind. Pick a number between one and four. Everybody do that. One and four. How many people pick three? Raise your hand. All right. Uh, In your mind, pick a flower. All right. How many people thought of a rose? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, Without thinking about it too much, pick a piece of furniture. How many people thought about a chair? All right, several of you did. Now, I didn't get it all right all of the time, but as human beings, we tend to have predictable tendencies, and sometimes that's really good because we have certain patterns and reactions that are predictable, and people know that about us, but that's not always good because sometimes we need life to be spontaneous, right? But one of the things that we see when we look at the Gospels is when we look at the story of the Pharisees, it seems like they're always predictable. And they have this expectation that Jesus is going to be as predictable as they are, but the love of Jesus oftentimes does the most unpredictable things. And that's what we're going to see in our story tonight. So I'd like to pray one more time, and then we'll get into the story and see how it affects us and can transform us this evening. So let us pray. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this night. Lord, we don't want to come and just... um, attend another service. We want to come to a service and be transformed and changed by the Word of God. So Lord, tonight open up our hearts, open up our minds. We pray that your Word will flow into the deep recesses of our hearts and help it shape us and change us into be more effective witnesses for you in the coming days. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's read together from John chapter 8. And let's read verses 1 through 11. John 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
So get the picture of what's happening here. Here is this woman. She's been drug out before the crowd. I can almost see her now. Her hair's a mess. Her lipstick is smeared across her face. Her nightgown is torn. And perhaps she has bruises on her arms where these men have drug her out. And all of a sudden, she finds herself before a Bible class. And here she stands in total and absolute shame. The Pharisees have not done this to her because they care about her or they care about the law. This entire thing is a trap. It's a setup which ought to make those men ashamed of what they've done. And they, in their thinking, are very predictable about what they think should happen, and they think that they can predict exactly what Jesus is going to do and how he will respond. So they believe that they have a trap set for him. If he says the woman should be stoned according to the law, then they're going to be able to look back at the people and say, well, what about your compassionate Savior? What about the one that said, come unto me, all you who are weary, who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? What about this one that is to care for your soul and to be a friend of sinners? But then if Jesus says, let her go, then Jesus deserves to be stoned too because the law said that those who deny the truth of Old Testament law ought to be stoned. So they don't see love. They only see law. That's the only lens through which they're looking. And sadly, what they do is they take this poor woman and they treat her not like a person, but they treat her like an issue. And people should never, ever be treated like an issue. So here is this woman who's living her life with a large degree of shame. You know, shame is a debilitating emotion. There is an agony all its own that is associated and connected with shame. It's worse than guilt, far worse than guilt. Guilt's more of a private thing. You feel guilty about something, maybe nobody else knows about it, and you feel something in your heart, and perhaps you never share that with another person. You kind of deal with guilt like you say, well, you swallow your pride and you try to just kind of hold it there. But with shame, it's hard to let it go. Shame is something that's more public. It's something that's more open to others. There's that constant voice of accusation saying, you're the one, you're the one that's guilty, and this is the woman that wears the A upon her breast. There are always people in your life that will try to shame you. There are people in your world that will never let you, let, let you forget the mistakes of your past. And they'll try to attach you and tie you to those mistakes. And they'll want you to be defined by one moment in time forever. Sometimes it's people in your own family that never seem to let you live down a mistake that you made. It comes to the child when a parent says, you'll never amount to anything. Or it comes to a husband and a wife when one of them decides to keep a record of wrongs of the things that a spouse has done amiss. Shame is a very powerful emotion, and it drives people to desperate extremes and to a very isolated existence. So how is Jesus going to respond to this very tense moment when this woman has been dragged out, thrown down before the group in a public setting? What will he say when presented with two options? 
And Jesus at first doesn't really say anything. Verse 6 says, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. I really love that. You know, there are three times in the Bible that God is said to write something with his finger. The first time he writes is on Mount Sinai when the law is given on tablets of stone to Moses. The second time that we see God write something is with Belshazzar when he's having this feast and he's full of all of his pomp and his pride and there's this grisly hand that writes on the wall in the times of Daniel, many, many, take parson, which means, Belshazzar, your time is up. And the third time that Jesus writes is right here. Now, what did he write? And people love to debate that and speculate about it. We really don't know. I don't guess it matters. Some suppose that maybe he was writing down the sins of all of the accusers. But I think the more important thing here may be the fact that Jesus slows things down. He stoops down and writes on the ground and takes this highly emotionally charged moment and he slows down the anger and the emotion of that immediate time. Even his posture seems to say something about slowing down this moment. You know, I was teaching this not too long ago to a group of young adults. And one of the young ladies in the class shared this when I got to the end. And I said, what is your takeaway from this moment? She said, well, you know, I am studying right now to be a teacher. I'm going to graduate pretty soon. And one of the things that they teach you as a teacher is when you've got a child that's out of control, you get down on your knees and you get down to the level of the child and you talk to that child that way. You don't stand here and look down, you get down on that child's level. And she says, you know, we have a tendency in stressful moments to speed things up. We make ourselves bigger, we talk louder, we talk more quickly. But Jesus in this moment of intense struggle is just simply coming down by his very posture he indicates something about how we deal with stress and when he deals with this he teaches us something about humility by his words and also by the posture of stooping that he takes and as the story progresses people begin to drop their rocks the bible says they drop their rocks from the oldest to the youngest. You know, I remember a mentor of mine saying one time in a sermon, do you know why Jesus just stooped down? He said, I think he did it because he was giving people a chance to think about the implications of what they were about to do. And he said, I believe that Jesus had enough confidence, even in sordid human nature, to believe if these men were giving the, given the chance to really think about what they were doing, they would hopefully make the right choice. That they were doing the inexcusable by setting this woman up and setting him up in this way. And that's actually what happened. He de-escalated the struggle and they began to drop their rocks. And then Jesus becomes an advocate, an advocate for this terribly embarrassed and shamed and broken woman. You see, here was the problem with the Pharisees. And you may note in your Bible, it may be that this story is in parentheses or in italics. The reason for that is this story does not show up in the Gospel of John in the oldest manuscripts in this place. 
Many people believe it's out of place. And for some reason, a scribe came along later and he added it here. Most don't doubt that this story actually happened. They just doubt that it really goes here. But there are others that think, well, maybe a scribe said, I'm going to put it here because you had this long speech that Jesus is making in chapter 7 and 8, and it kind of breaks it up and it gives the opportunity for a story that illustrates some of the things that Jesus was saying. So, notice something that Jesus said back in the 7th chapter of John. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Moses gave you the law about circumcision, and yet you circumcise a baby boy on the Sabbath day. If a baby boy can be circumcised on a Sabbath day to obey the law of Moses, why are you angry at me for healing a person's whole body on the Sabbath day? Stop judging by the way things look and judge by what is really right. Some say judge correctly. What's he saying in that statement? You are so quick to judge other people, but you don't judge yourself. And some believe the scribe came along and said, here's a perfect example of the principle that Jesus was trying to teach. Later on, Paul put it this way in Romans 2 verse 1. You therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the very same thing. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the greatest sinners are often the greatest accusers? And in the name of the Lord, I think some of us have seen other people that profess to be Christians do some of the most cruel things at times. Well, the good thing is these men think about it. They think about, hopefully, what their Bible had told them, and they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. Can I say something about that for a moment? I know my dad has said, I've never heard a sermon on that very point, that they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. But if a person has been a Christian for a long time, which is a lot of us today, then we ought to understand mercy better than we did when we were younger, right? Because we've experienced grace, we should be the least judgmental people on this earth. The older we are, men and women, the more quickly we ought to be the people that are willing to drop our rocks. And there are some situations in your life and in mine where we've held on to something for a long time. There's somebody that's hurt you, somebody that's offended you. You've been personally injured by what they've said, and you're still holding on to a rock or two. And maybe it's time for you to take that rock and drop it and turn that matter over to the grace of God. Verse 10 says, only Jesus was left with the woman after that moment. He says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know why Jesus could call people out for their sin? 
Because before he ever did that, Jesus demonstrated that he was willing to be a friend of sinners. He treated those people that came to him with dignity. And he treated people with respect before their change ever happened. She had been accused by these men. But one of the things that happens to us often in life is we get filled with accusations, especially in the times of our mistakes and our bad moments. When you read Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Not just lost people, but Satan accuses saved people in the same way that he accuses those who are lost. And it goes on to say that Satan accuses the brethren day and night before our God. Day and night, Satan's work is to accuse you. And this is how he works. He roams around like a roaring lion. He's reminding you of some past sin or some mistake that you made at a moment in time. And one of the works that he has is to cause you to be defeated and to lose your joy because he always wants to roam around and remind you of some mess up in your life. Thankfully, we have a God that intercedes for us in our sin and in our guilt. But every time when Satan says, mm, that, that David Baker, Jesus says, but Father, the blood, the blood. He stands at the throne of God interceding on our behalf. If we can ever get hold of that, men and women, we can change the world. There are broken people in this room Broken people in this world, in this community. Church buildings are full of people that are hurting this very night. And when this Sunday comes, it's going to be the same thing. But you see, the church is called to be a hospital for sick people, not a courtroom. The courthouse is right down the road. You can go down there to see the judge. But the church is called to be a hospital Jesus came to heal the sick, to help the sick, not just the righteous. Could you imagine going to a hospital and someone on staff saying, can you believe that sick person over there? I can't believe that person has walked in here. Listen, we're a hospital. You've all messed up. I've messed up. All of us have messed up in one way or another. And I think when we understand that and we live with this sense, it's not me, it's him. It's not my success, it's his success. It's not my failures, it's his blood. Then that begins to change the way that we live our lives every day. And we live now with freedom and victory instead of a person that feels accused day in and day out. So you say, well, are you encouraging sin? Is this passage about that? No, I'm not encouraging sin. I'm trying to encourage sinners. I think the story is meant to encourage all of us that have had some very bad moments along the way, moments of guilt and shame and embarrassment. I love 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter says this. Of all people that could talk about it, I would think Peter would be one. He says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. 
What's he saying? We need to encourage people that there is a God and God holds us responsible. Jesus was doing that with this woman on this occasion. He says, look, you can't continue to live this way. Go and leave your life of sin. We need to care enough about people that we love to tell them the truth. We really do. And that's a rare thing in this world. You need to tell me, I need to tell you, that's what friends and brothers and sisters do. We're honest with one another. But then notice that very next verse. It says in verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, before I can come tell you your fault, I need to know you You need to know that I care about you. I need to be in relation with you. And when you come and approach me and say, I'm concerned about this in your life, I'm probably going to listen to you because I know that you love me. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Here was a woman that didn't need an accuser. She needed a Savior. And that's what Jesus was to her. She needed someone to give her hope and a future. Someone that didn't focus backwards to her sin, but someone that helped her to go and leave this lifestyle and open up a future where there was help and joy and blessing in her life. My guess is there'd never been a man, there'd never been a person that had spoke to her in the way that Jesus spoke to her. He loved her. He valued her. She wasn't an issue. She was a child of God. She was a person that needed encouragement. Jesus had a way of treating people with amazing dignity and respect. And I think that that probably brought about a change in her life. And so we see that there's a great reversal in this story. When it begins, the woman is the one that she's filled with shame. But when you get to the end of the story, the Pharisees are the ones that are hanging their head and they're walking away in shame. And so the Pharisees asked this question, what does the law say? But Jesus, in essence, he asked this question, I think, but what about this woman? What about this child of God? And there's a woman that's changed, I believe, forever because she fell down and fell into the hands of a righteous and holy Savior. So there's a friend of mine, his name is Wayne Qualls, and he is an elder in the church at Centerville, Tennessee. And I was at a school board academy doing some training a few years ago, and Wayne Qualls, he serves on the school board in Centerville, and he was telling this story. He's an educator, and he's been a principal, and he was telling about this moment back in the 80s when he was a principal of an elementary school there in Centerville, And so it became pretty obvious that there were some asbestos problems in the school. They were going to have to get rid of some of the asbestos. It was in the ceiling. And he looked at that as a principal, and he thought, man, this is going to cost so much. We can't afford this. And he said, during Christmas break, I went and got the janitor, and I said, let's go in there over Christmas. Let's get some masks on. Let's tear that stuff out. Save the school a lot of money. So that's what he did. They pulled a trailer up outside of a window. They started to throw the asbestos out. But then it started to rain. And if you know anything about asbestos, when it gets wet, it gets extremely heavy. So they packed up their stuff, 
They're headed to the dump site. They go across the Duck River Bridge, and there's so much weight on the trailer now that one of the axles break. And right there in the middle of the bridge, they're broken down. Cars are passing by them one after another. Well, they got the trailer fixed. They got onto the dump. He thought that was the end of the whole matter. But about three weeks later, he got a call. It was someone from uh, the police department. He said, is this Wayne Qualls? He said, yeah. He said, well, we've had a complaint from several people that you have illegally torn out asbestos and dumped it, and so we need you to appear before the judge. And he said, I thought, what in the world am I going to do? He said, I went to the school board lawyer, and I said, you've got to help me. He said, I can't help you with that when you're on your own, man. He said, you're going to be on your own on this one. He said, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I thought about it, and I prayed about it. And he said, then the day came, and I showed up in the courtroom, and I went before the judge, and I stood in front of him at his bench. And he said, are you Wayne Qualls? He said, I hung my head down. Oh, the shame of it. I said, yes, sir. He said, are you the principal of so-and-so elementary school? He said, yes, sir, I am. He said, do you have anything to say? He said, no, sir. He said, then how did you plead? Guilty. He said, what, what, wait a minute, should you say that again? How do you plead? He said, guilty. He said, the judge was taken aback, and he said, we never really had anybody do that before. <laughs> and he said, he talked for a few more minutes. And he said, I tell you what, Wayne, you go away free. Just don't let this happen again. He said, the only thing that I knew to do was throw myself down at the foot of the cross. He said, I was guilty. I was before the judge. Now, does that make Wayne a bad man? Not at all. But what it does is it shows his goodness and his reliance upon God by admitting, this is what I've done, and yes, I'm guilty, but I'm going to be a man that's going to need grace. Grace. So how do we become advocates for broken people? When we think about people like this woman in our story, how do we become her advocate? Let me give you three things that I think are helpful to say to people that are broken down by life. And the first one I think that we need to say to people is this, you are not alone. You are not alone. When someone gets caught up in a sin, the emotion that is most commonly felt is shame, and it's such a powerful emotion. It's expressed in the words of a young adult who said this. She said, I'm 31 years old and divorced, though I fought divorce bitterly. I feel as if I'm going to have to sit out the rest of my life in the penalty box. No, you're not. You're not going to have to do that at all. You are not alone, and we love you, and we're going to stand with you. You will not fight this battle by yourself. God is not finished with you. The days in front of you may be the best days that you've ever had because God loves to take all these broken pieces and put them together into something magnificent and beautiful. You may become a great minister to other people going through a similar struggle. It happens all the time. Love covers over a multitude of sins. The second thing that I think that she needed to hear and others need to hear, maybe you need to hear, is that you were loved. You were loved. 
Why did Jesus stoop and stand and stoop again? We can only speculate. Maybe he was shielding her from some young Pharisee that had already slung a rock or two. But Jesus comes to where she is. He's with her. He's on her level. He's defending her. He's saying to her, you are loved just the way you are. I watched a documentary on Fred Rogers not too long ago. Has anyone seen that? You know, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Have you seen that documentary? I would encourage you to go and watch it. For generations, he was so effective with young people. And one of the things that he says, he was a preacher, by the way. He said, no change is possible in the life of a human being if we can't say to them, you are special just the way you are. He wasn't saying that if you're on a wrong path, it's okay to stay there. But he was saying that people have to know this. I love you and accept you without strings attached. You're a child of God. You're made in his image. You are made special just the way that you are. So what was Jesus drawing on the ground? Well, listen to this statement in a book called The Tangible Kingdom. It says, for all we know, he was drawing a smiley face. The powerful revelation is that God, the God of the universe, the only one who should have been genuinely offended, who could have postured himself as judge and executioner, literally lowers himself to her level and becomes her only friend, protector, and advocate. Yes, he does challenge her lifestyle and ask her to stop, but not until he has postured himself as her advocate. This is the key. He addresses her head only after he has her heart. He has her heart. I think people need to know, if you're a part of this group, we're not going to abandon you. It really doesn't matter. We love you. We're going to stay with you. We're not going to write you off. We're going to draw you very, very close to us. And I love the way the, uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. What is he saying? I take from that that when someone's caught up in a sin, we don't push them away. We don't withdraw from them. We've got to restore fellowship. We've got to come after them more than we ever have before. Don't withdraw from sinners that are in their struggle Pull to them and seek fellowship with them before you ever try to withdraw a fellowship that maybe doesn't exist. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So at Grace Point, let me show you a picture. Can you see that? There's no picture showing? Oh, let's see if it shows now. There it is. Okay. So, um, outside our office door, we have this bucket. Let me tell you what it says on it. Cigarette butts. Now, do you remember the time when all the men used to go out between class and worship and smoke? And nobody really does that anymore? So, we had a couple of men that came to our elders and said, we represent Alcoholics Anonymous. And the building that we're meeting in is being torn down. And we want to know if we could meet in your building because we're, we believe you're a church that helps people. And so four nights a week, AA meets in our building. It's kind of an inconvenience at times because we can't use the building. We don't have a huge building 
like you guys. We've got like, you know, a smaller building. But one of the men, he put this bucket out and it says cigarette butts on it. So all of a sudden, we've got guys that are standing outside of our church and they're smoking. Well, at least they're smoking cigarettes. They're making improvements, right? We're going the right direction. But we think it's important that we be a church that is known in the community as a church that cares about people. And so there's one guy that is a part of our group. And we work with AA. We've got a number of these men and women that are coming to our services on Sunday morning. We're doing counseling with couples. We're trying to help them put their lives back together. We're going out to a recovery facility in town. And every Thursday night, three men, we're going out and studying the Bible with people. And we're watching the Bible literally change their lives. It's the most wonderful thing that any of us have ever experienced. And so there's this one guy that I'm working with right now. I counseled with he and his wife on Monday night. His name's Lloyd. And when you look at Lloyd, you think, boy, I don't know about that guy. He's got tattoos all up and down his arm, all up his neck, all the way to his ears. You'd look at him and you say, boy, that's a rough guy right there. And Lloyd and his little wife, Peyton, she's 22. They have two children. He's 27. He came to me one night. He said, he said David, could you do marriage counseling for Peyton and me? We got started on a wrong note. We used to get high together, and that's how we met. But we want our lives to be different. So one night I'm talking to Lloyd, and I said, Lloyd, Tell me about all these tattoo markings that are all over your body. He said, you really want to know? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'll tell you how it happened. He said, I stayed in prison for six years. And he said, I was stabbed seven times. And the only way that I could survive in prison was to join a gang. And those markings are representative of the gang that I had to be in to be able to stay alive. And here he is. I would have looked at him and judged him and made assumptions about him and given him a label. But when I started looking that man in the eyes and watching his little wife with those tears running down her face saying, I want my life to be better. I want us to love each other as God intended. It's changed me. And that story is replayed over and over week after week at the church that we're a part of. I'm so thankful for it. You know, AA has... 12 steps, 12 steps, and notice the first three. It says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, and we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And I asked the guys a couple of weeks ago in our Bible study, that, that's the easy part, right? It's the other steps that are the most difficult. They said, no, 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 wait a minute. Those are the hardest steps there are. Because what it means is you've got to surrender your life and say, God, it's not me. It's you. You come into my life and you make a change within me. Well, here's the last thing. The last thing is this. You are welcome in this place. You are welcome in this place. You know, most of the time, it's not our beliefs that need to be changed. It's our posture. Jesus stooped, and we need to do that as well. Jesus said, go and sin no more. 
A friend of mine said that in this passage, that tells me that we have to find a way to hold the integrity of the gospel while at the same time pursuing people that are broken. And so that's the posture that we need to take. So I want to end by telling you a story. Fred Craddock tells this story, a well-known preacher. He says he remembers the first church that he served in the hills of East Tennessee. It was in Oak Ridge. It became the site of the new nuclear plant that was being built there. And he said, I was preaching in this little white church building. It was 112 years old, had these beautiful chimneys. The, The pews were built out of the poplar that was cut upon the land. And he said, because Oak Ridge was beginning to grow, people were moving into the area like crazy. He said there were houses going up, but mostly there were RVs and campers that were coming in, and moms and dads and children were coming in there from everywhere. And he said, so I met with the men for a men's business meeting after church one Sunday morning, and I said, I think that we need to have an outreach campaign to all the people that are moving in here. And he said a couple of men said, oh, they won't really fit here. You know, they're just kind of transient. They're temporary. They'll come and go. But I don't really think that they're going to fit in to the folks that are here in our church. And he said, no, I think we need to do this. And somebody said, well, let's table that till next Sunday and we'll discuss it some more. He said, so they come back next Sunday and they have their meeting. And immediately somebody says, I make a motion that to be a member of this church, you have to own land in the county. And somebody else seconded it, and it passed, and that was the end of the whole thing. The end of it. Well, eventually, Fred Craddock moved on, and he tells this story about coming back to that little town. He said, now it was kind of hard to find it. The dirt road was now a paved road, but now he found his way down the paved road the dirt road, he finally found the church building, and there it was. And this is what he writes about it. He says the countryside had changed. The roads were different, but there it was, the little white building with the steeple and the stained glass windows. But, he said, the church was different. The parking lot was full. There were cars of all sorts and trucks and motorcycles. And in front of the church, was a new sign, barbecue all you can eat. He said, it's a restaurant now. The church is closed. Inside, there were tables rather than pews. There was a cashier's desk where the pulpit used to be. And around the table was gathered all kinds of temporary transient people, rich and poor, high school dropout and college professor There were even a few construction workers there. Everyone was welcome in the restaurant, but it wasn't a church anymore. And the moment that we stop caring about defeated and hurting and broken people, that's the time that our demise begins. Now, I'm thankful to be here tonight Because I know this is a church that cares about people. And my encouragement to you in the coming days is to do that more and more and more. Go to the parts of town where people tell you to stay out of. 
Go to the places where other Christians never really traverse. Go to the treatment centers and the AA meetings and sit through a few of those and listen to the stories and let those things begin to change your life. And the church will be, vi- will be vibrant and powerful and an example and a witness to the love of Jesus for generations to come. So let me leave you with this verse. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Notice what Paul says. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, say it with me, Christ died. Who's that person that you need to stoop to this week and get on their level and pick them up and lift them up by the grace of God?